Welcome back to the Rowing Revolution podcast with Carlos Daenerys and Barney Williams. Well, we are thrilled today to bring an individual to you that needs no introduction, but uh, we will certainly do our best to give him one. The goal, though, is to go behind, as you know, the scenes, to get underneath the surface and focus on the individual and their processes and their journey And this individual's journey led to an incredible set of successes in many different environments. We're going to focus on a very special time on Elk Lake between 2000 and 2012. And we'll spend a little more time explaining that time period with our guest. But as we've stated consistently, our belief is that by going deeper than the resume or the accomplishments, we'll create a meaningful experience for our guest, but also for our listeners. And we continue to be inspired by the response from our community to this project. And we're so grateful for the continued feedback and the suggestions that we receive. So whether you're heading out for a hike or watching the sunrise with a great cup of coffee or the sunset with a nice craft beer, take a moment and consider that these next 60 to 75 minutes could actually generate a call to action in your personal or professional life. So Carlos, In order for us to set the stage for this individual, I want to go back to a moment that made a lasting impression on you. And that was a visit you had in the spring of 2008 to Elk Lake, where you spent two days immersed in the daily training environment of the Canadian Olympic heavyweight men's team. And you described to me, and I'd love you to share with the listeners, a very special interaction you had with Mike Spracklin, the head coach of that team. You sat down at Adrian's Tea Garden, very famous for many of our listeners who know a sacred spot for the rowers where they had got a little bit of uh, pre-second uh, session nutrition, three big slices of French toast with tons of maple syrup and a cup of hot chocolate. But for you sitting there with Mike Spracklin, what do you remember about that conversation and just maybe give our listeners a little insight into that very special moment for you. Yeah, um, I, you know, it was April 2008. I uh, drove from Seattle. Um, I knew some of the rowers from Washington, you know, that were on the team. And, um, you know, I asked Mike Spracklin to join him for three days um, to just, you know, see the environment and see the training. And, you know, I was a learning coach. I was you know, passionate, fascinated about coaching. And he definitely, um, you know, had some amazing success prior to that time I saw him. So anyway, I get to LA, um, we go on the motorboat on the morning. Um, I see, you know, the men's eight, it was in the eight this morning. Um, you know, I remember, as I mentioned to you before, they show up to practice, they look tired. Um, they just went through the motions of practice. They executed the practice, but to me, you know, they they look like um, a very hardworking team on the way they look exhausted just before practice, and they were able to execute the whole practice. Their faces were, you know, um, you know, they 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 weren't like really uh, jokes before practice. They weren't jokes after practice. They weren't laughed. You know, it was just hard work. Um, I remember, you know, it was. He was timing the practice. Um, it felt stressful. It felt like um, they were building for something. They had a lot on the line. So after practice, we went to to breakfast, and I got in. I jumped in his car. He asked me, "Oh, join me with the car." All the coaches were going in another car, and it was me, just and him. 
and I just knew him for a few hours. And we uh, get to the parking lot of the diner, and I say, "Can you? Can I ask you a question?" He say, "Yeah, go ahead." And I say, "Um, it feels like you are going under a lot of stress. You know, I feel like there is a lot here at stake. You know, how do you handle that stress?" I just shoot him that question because it just felt like you know I I was trying to put myself in his place. And then he looks at me and say, "Carlos, uh, there is." two kind of stress in life. And he said, there is uh, good stress and bad stress. He said, the bad, bad stress is the one that you want to avoid, is the one that is going to kill you with cancer, is going to kill you with, um, you know, not letting you sleep, you know, like regretting things and being miserable and it's going to destroy your health. And there is the good stress and the good stress is, is that kind of challenges that you look in life that are not easy but make you to push and to get better and they're not easy. And he said that for me is good stress coaching this team because I, I feel like, you know, we are, have a goal and it's a good goal. We're not hurting anyone with our goal and uh, and definitely it's not easy for them and for me. So that's how he answered the question. <laughs> well, I mean, I know that you and I both would take that and talk about good stress in, in many different ways now uh i guess parenting being one that really comes to mind and and i think this conversation today carlos is a chance to go behind the scenes with an individual with someone who was a and is a father uh, a husband but as you have pointed and 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 as we have acknowledged um hopefully effectively here has been a legendary coach a, a coach that probably would be in that top three or four Olympic coaches of all time category. But that humi humility that you had and he had in the parking lot is kind of the theme today. So what types of questions do you sort of want to get into today with Mike? Uh, I mean, listen, I keep looking back and, um, and, you know, and looking at all his life coaching, you know, I'm always curious and I bet a lot of people are curious about the man behind the scene. So I I just want to know about his experience, like his personal experience. You know, we know that he had to coach to win. He did coach to win. He show up every day to practice. But how was that for him? Um, he spent so much time there at the lake. So, you know, like, did he have any life outside of when he was at the lake? Did How was life for right. him? Did, um, and, and, you know, I'm curious why he decided to devote so much time of his life to coaching, what was the call into coaching at that level? You know, we, it's very intense, like to coach. I mean, I remember, you know, like seeing all these, you know, alpha males there and he directed them from his little motorboat and they all like follow him, you know, blindless to, to you know, because they believe he will lead them to success and that was their dream. So why he decided to do that? <clears throat> I will say, you know, I would like to ask him if he has any regret or um, he will have done anything different. Maybe he doesn't want to answer that. And another question is why he loved winning so much or why he thinks winning is so important or why he will put so much time to winning and believes that the people around him had to win to be better or what's the call to win? You know, why is that important for humans? And maybe, yeah, I... you know, a last question is um, why, how he kept, motivated you know we you always talk about that he was there every day and he motivated everyone and he pushed everyone to the limit but who pushed him who who helped him to be at the same standard 
well, I think we've probably got a <laughs> bunch of people sitting there saying, let's get on with it and, and get Mike on here. So we're, we're going to do that. Um, we'll, of course, try and give Mike a little warm up, knowing that he always believed very strongly in a, in a good warm up. So that's a, a good practice. Uh, really looking forward to this. Here we go. We're welcoming Mike Spracklin to the Rowing Revolution. Mike, welcome to the Rowing Revolution. We are so thrilled to have you here. Um, I know you're in Marlow. It's Sunday. The clocks have just gone back. How, uh, how are you doing there? Yes, fine. We had a lot of rain today and then a sunny spell. So it's, it's been pretty pleasant. Thank you. <laughs> um, we are getting our feet wet with this project. Um, I know you've had the chance to hear a little bit about what we're doing and, and listen to a couple of the episodes. And with each episode, we try and improve. And one of the things we realize we have to give our guests a chance to warm up to get as excited as we are to get off the starting line. And so we've got four rapid fire questions for you. There's no right or wrongs here, but we'd love just the first answer that comes to mind. And uh, Carlos is going to ask you the first question. So off you go, Carlos. So uh, Mike, if you're looking at your first experience uh, when you were a young athlete in competition, um, what comes to mind and how did you, how, how, how that impacted you? You know, it was maybe rowing or maybe it was doing something else, but what do you remember? Oh, I well remember my first trip to, um, to the Marla Rowing Club and stepping into a boat and being on water. It just, it was just like magic. And I wanted more and more of it. And it, it, I kept wanting to go down and kept wanting to go on onto the water. Uh, I loved it. And of course, as, the, as we progressed from a, a, a boat that was fixed to the bank to a, then a moving boat which was big and heavy and wide and then to a four and a racing shell and each step was magic for me and I just couldn't get enough of it. Beautiful. Uh, Mike, you're going to have a dinner here. You're going to have whatever meal you were, would like to have, but you get to invite four people to join you for dinner and they can be still with us or may have passed, who are the four people you'd have sit at the dinner table with you for a special dinner? Well, that's a very tough question to ask, Barney. Obviously, I've met some wonderful people in my time. And of course, you would you would also, you would be one of them invited to dinner, but it would be- No, 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 I don't, I, I'm okay <laughs> with not being in the top four, Mike. You, you go ahead here. But it would be, um, I would feel a little unfair to some really some people if I have to choose people above them. But people that stick in my mind quite frequently, of course, Stephen Redgrave and Silkin Larman and, um, you know, and Carl Hamilton and Andrew Hoskins and, and, and yourself and Jake Wetzel and, and people like that and John Wallace and Mike Rasher and Rob. Wow, it's turning, turning into quite a dinner party here. Well, I'll just uh, give you clarity there is no right or wrong answers you've done done extraordinarily well here but we did have our, our previous guests say that they would like to have elvis presley and um and jesus at the table with them so anybody outside of the rowing community you'd like to join us well i'm i'm not an elvis presley fan and <laughs> okay we we got that one in the bank uh carlos next question from you 
So Mike, if um, you dog, cat, or none of them? Sorry, can you repeat that again? So you have a dog, you have a cat, you no. don't have any. Do you are attracted to any of those? No. Um, wife had a dog and she was beautiful and I loved her. And we had two dogs. They were golden retrievers and they were lovely and were beautiful. But they are quite a big responsibility. It means uh, a, a lot of care. It does tire you. And so, yes, I would love one now, but feel I wouldn't do it justice. Yeah. Can I ask the names of the golden retrievers, Mike? Yes, uh, Gemma. The, uh, the the registered name was um, White Lady, and the name <laughs> we call it no African Lady. Sorry, not White Lady. African Lady was her title. Gemma became name. I read a poem about her. Okay, and the other one. Abby, anyone Abby. call her Abby, A B B Y. Where that came from, I don't know. But <laughs> okay, and last one. Uh, I hope you're feeling loose now and and uh, definitely warmed up a little bit. The fate, your favorite book you've ever read. My favorite poem. Well, one of the, of course the poem I wrote about Annie is uh, clearly my favorite. Um, the first serious one that I wrote for rowing was Barcelona Gold. Um, I like that one. And, you know, I've written several other poems. The British Women, uh, the poem I wrote for uh, Beijing, Beijing Dream. Mm. Mm. Well, again, uh, I'm going to try and bring you back to a very special time on Elk Lake, um, a, a period that lasted three quadrennials, 2000, 2001 to 2012. But I have to now interject a little story here because I think I asked you what your favorite book was and you very sort of quickly pivoted to poetry, which I would accept as, you know, the favorite poem that you have read. Uh, but I don't think you're telling me that your favorite poem is the poem that you wrote, although that would be impressive in one respect because you have an extensive catalog. Buffy, my wife, remembers in 2002, the fall of 2002, as we set the stage for Elk Lake, a very interesting interaction where you were on the dock. I think she was just off the dock in a single skull. And you were asking her to maybe make a couple adjustments that would improve the efficiency of her rowing stroke. I think it might have been around her grip, might have been around her body position. She remembers you getting slightly frustrated with her and her lack of understanding to the point where you asked her to move the boat to the dock to remove herself from the boat so you could get in the boat and show her what you were talking about. Do you remember that? <laughs> As you speak, so it slowly comes back. The more I think about it, the more I remember, but I don't, but I wouldn't, it wasn't in my memory bank until you spoke about it. And yes, I do remember, I don't, I do remember that happening. I can't remember what the, uh, the actual point I was getting across was. <laughs> well, I just, I think we wanted, to set the stage for an incredibly special 
conversation by really being very thoughtful about the purposeful and intentional direction of this conversation, Mike. And that's my only point when I came back to the favorite book. So can I give you one more shot at the favorite book that you've ever read? Well, you're going to be shocked if I tell you Steve Fairburn's book on, on rowing and sculling. Not shocked at all. <laughs> Not shocked at all, because this lends itself precisely to the line of question that Carlos and I have for you, which is this passion, this life's dedication to this sport. And there's the Bible in, in one respect, in terms of your connection to the sport. You mentioned Steve Fairburn many times. Can we go now to your arrival back to Elk Lake? For those that don't know, this was not your first time on Elk Lake in 2000. I think it was January 2001. You'll correct me in terms of when you arrived. But you had a wonderfully powerful relationship with Elk Lake. But when you arrived back, Derek Porter, Terry Paul, Darren Barber, none of that 1990 Olympic winning crew was there. It was completely different. So, Carlos, what do you want to know about Mike's arrival back to Elk Lake in 2001 as he sought out to recreate a winning environment? Well, I, you know, I will ask you, Mike, um, you, by the time you go back to a lake, you, you had winning crews, you had success. I think you have a very clear idea of what you want the team to be. But you know when you have it when you arrive to a place and um, you don't have enough rowers to even put an aid together, and you uh, you know um, you know the, the the rowers you have never had interaction with are there, so they don't know you. What are the the basics or what are the first things that you put in place in order to start creating that environment of success or that environment that you need to create so that you can produce uh, the training you want to. Well, when you have, when you go into a, a new environment, a new team, the reason I'm there is because they're not doing very well. The reason I get asked to go to coach somebody or coach a team is because they're failing. And so my pathway can only be upwards, can't it? It can't go down, can only go up. And so when I go into that environment, the first thing I have to do is to get people on the water rowing. I don't have a restriction. There's no trial. You don't have to prove yourself to come. Anybody can come because I believe that everyone has a potential and it's my role to get that potential out of them. Some people's potential is much higher than others, but everyone has a potential. And that's why I'm against having trials because if you have a trial and athletes are not trained all to the same level, then the child becomes less effective and you uh, athletes slip through the net. You lose athletes with the potential. So the first thing you do is open up to allow anyone to come and join in. And so at what happened on Elk Lake then, there were a few athletes, but they weren't national team athletes. There was only one national team athlete from the previous team. Um, all the rest were... Uh, completely new athletes they had been in the environment they had tried for the team and not made the team but they did provide a foundation for the beginning of a new regime 
and by allowing everyone to join in it gets bigger and bigger and it gradually grows and with the growth the athletes get stronger within the growth and athletes that are really not very strong at all if they've got potential then they have a chance to fulfill it and that's what i do is create something that allows them to fulfill their potential but then you but within that that idea of that everybody can join um you start educating those athletes the way you want them to perf the way you want the the whole energy or the whole um sequence of actions through your interaction be for example you know they should show up on time or they can uh, they can talk to you or not or you know you you tell them very clear you're, you're building that that clearness of system and i guess when there are new athletes wh what are um what are the things that you teach them so that from the beginning there is no confusion or, you know, which are very important for you, like religion within, you say, if we don't respect those things, we're not going to be successful. Yes, of course, that is a problem. And one expects people to become skeptical about what you're telling them. And yes, some people do question what you're saying or what you're doing. But you have to be confident in what you're doing, confident and show that confidence. And your role, the coach's role, is to instill that confidence in the athletes. If the athletes haven't got confidence in the coach, then it's not going to work. And so my job then is to create that confidence in the athletes. And the way you do that initially is done with skills in technique because you can easily show somebody how to move the boat quickly how to move it fast it's not difficult to do that mm. once you know the, the skills and the techniques and once you've that confidence has started to evolve it doesn't happen overnight all of a sudden they're not how confidence is done piece by piece by piece by piece and every time you do something that is not acceptable or is wrong is incorrect you take two or three steps back so you don't you try not to allow that to happen the athletes progress then um, piece by piece, technically, physically, and by holding um, a, a test every so often, we'll, we'll show them how with, how they are improving or whether they're improving or not. And you see, by rowing together, we always rowed as a group. We rowed in small boats as a group because it al allowed everyone then to train within sight of me. I'm on the water, I want to be able to see everybody all the time, every, every and to do that, they have to be training as a group, and that means they're training side by side, and from a safety point of view as well, because the Elk Lake itself is is not it's not a big lake, but nevertheless, if you fall in, you've got a long swim to the shore, and if it's icy, it's it's there is there is always an element of. Um, and it's always a hazard. And so they're always in my sight. I'm watching them every session. And watching them every session allows me to know how much they can take, how where they need to be, what they have to do. And that's the way it grows. That's the way the team develops. So, now, Car so Carlos, sorry, just let me just clarify here, because we've got the theory, which, Mike, I think you've spelled out very, very succinctly here, which is building confidence building trust i've heard a great phrase recently it says things move at the speed of trust 
but when you arrived, if I've got this right, in January of 2001, there was three or four athletes at the lake. And so it can't be easy for you to return home after a session. I mean, what is that experience like for you in terms of just the motivation, the belief that that group of three or four is going to turn into something that can compete with the best in the world? Where, where does that come from? And that's what Carlos and I are fascinated by is this experience for you off the water, behind the scenes. I mean, did you have doubts? Did you have sort of fear of, of this is going to work? Well, well, of course, you can't win if you don't have quality athletes. You, you cannot turn a silk purse from a sow's ear if the athlete hasn't got the, the physique, the, uh, the, engine, the engine to drive the boat. You're not going to be successful. And, and so by training everybody, you're at least bringing forward those people who do have the engine. And there's a lot, an element of luck attached to it. But I also know, you know, that if you have success, it draws people in. People want mm. success. They want to come. And by and success doesn't necessarily mean winning races. It means producing a, an environment, a, a training that people can gain confidence in. And when they can see it's organized and it's being controlled and directed, then they'll want to be part of it. It's human nature to want to be the best, as good as you can be. And so they will want to become part of that, that regime. So, so Mike, um, I'm, I'm curious about why um, you, you obviously, like, have been listening carefully. And, you know, um, Barney asked you, who will you have dinner with? And you name... Um, some of the athletes, I'm sure you could you you could name many that you know you would like to have an interaction. But you described clearly there. You know, I would like to have dinner with some of my former athletes. Then he asked you about your favorite book, and you went to you know the Bible of rowing, which is a, a rowing book by Fairbanks. So, so you know that describes to me you are like totally um, you know um, your life is rowing. And, and you have devoted, you know, your life to be a master of the sport of rowing. So, you know, what happened, at, you know, what is special about you in your youth that makes you to have that personality or you looking back that makes you to be so laser focused on uh, becoming an expert of the sport of rowing, which you mentioned you're fascinated by when you go to the water the first time and you get in love with the sport and you cannot have enough. So you, you use rowing as that vehicle to, 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 to just bring people to the top, but why coaching and, and, uh, and why high-performance rowing? Well, humans are naturally drawn to water, but not everyone is. Not all humans are, and... I was drawn to water and I fell in love with it. And when you when you like something and you study it, the, the more you do, the more you learn, the more you learn, the more, the more you become involved, the more you, intensive you come with it. And so I spent so much of my early life studying, wanting to be better, and I certainly benefited from doing so. 
you know, I quote Steve Fairbairn, but since since reading all his books, he wrote about three or four of them, I found that I don't agree with everything that he said. And there's a lot of things that I don't agree, and I think there are ways of doing things better. But it provided a foundation. It provided a base. Rowing itself was based on orthodox, which was an orthodox way of rowing, which was done in a way to protect young boys from injuring themselves, like the straight back, good posture, and a disciplined routine. And Steve Fairburn broke away from that with a, a natural, don't worry about it, don't try, don't worry about posture approach. So he's, he's kind of breaking the rules in, in some way. And as you, as I got older and learned more about it, it was a question of combining the two. It's combining everything. And instilling that into your, the people you're coaching, um, you can only do that by demonstration. That, Mike, I think modeling the way idea, when, when, when Carlos is asking that, I mean, it's one thing to love it. It's one thing to be passionate about it. But it's another thing to exemplify that, to demonstrate that singularity. And again, this is the spirit of this conversation is to reflect back on the idea that in the early days, you were out there and other days, uh, post-Olympic uh, years were quite quiet on Elk Lake. I remember quite vividly, I think you had two athletes at one point, Pete Dembicki and Derek Van, or sorry, um, Doug Vander on the lake. I think it was just the two of them. Kevin Light was there for a period and then went to New Zealand. So it's quite is there a loneliness that you ever experienced in terms of just you believing in it and, and kind of wanting it almost more than the community? I'm not sure if I understand where you're coming from with that one, Barney. Um, I've, my, if athletes want help, then I will go on the water with them. I've never refused to help any any athlete. And sometimes I would go on the water with just one athlete and would do that lots of times. And so just have just a few athletes to begin with wouldn't stop me from wanting to go on the water. I wouldn't think I'm, I don't want to do this. I did want to do it. I want to be with everyone regardless of who they were or where they came from. So that speaks then to this inner calling, Carlos teasing out this idea of where does it come from, the connection with the water, the connection with the sport, even maybe more than the connection with winning and the connection with the Olympics? Is it, is it that visceral? Is it that at your core? And the core is, for me, Barney, is I can never say no. If somebody asks me to do something, then I will always try to do it. And never more so with rowing. And so it meant that I, I would spend hours on the water. Um, people would ask me to go on the water with them at 6 o'clock in the morning. Can you come out with me at 6 o'clock in the morning before I go to work? Can, will you come out with me at 8 o'clock in the evening? I can, get, I can get off for an hour here. And I would never refuse that. And I was always on the water. So I would be on the water for hours and hours. And sometimes for no avail, because a lot of those people, the people that ask you for the most help are the people that are struggling, the people that are they're not doing very well. And so you found yourself helping people that you knew weren't going to get to the top, weren't going mm. to be successful. But you can't be choosy. You, 
you have to follow the principle to the end. And yes, it meant being on the water was a waste of time, but I, I enjoyed doing it. And if I came off the water knowing that they had benefited from my being with them, that was that was my reward. It wasn't seeing them win an Olympic gold medal. It was seeing them happy with a little progress they've made. So when, when you... When you get hired to coach, um, you know, at that time, the, the Canadian national team, um, you know that the ultimate goal uh, they hire you for is to win an Olympic gold medal. And, um, and then you just put the things into place to achieve that. Um, how did you, when you, I think you had a conviction within yourself of the things that needed to happen, you know, to have a chance to win this Olympic gold, which is, was the ultimate goal. Um, how did you, you know, you, you, I, I'm sure you felt like a lot of pushbacks from the rowers when they were tired, from people that uh, it didn't work for them. So they had, they, they tried to sabotage the system uh, because it wasn't working for them. How, you know, where did you find, uh, you know, you had like strong, you have a very big strength within yourself to never um deviate from what you believed on but you were alone like you were leading the team alone and uh, you had a lot of pushback as you pushed them harder where did you find those strengths or, or where did you find that conviction to keep going because a lot of people in your place will have give up some of the um you know will have give up a little so in order to win small battles and but you kept pushing <clears throat> Well, pushing is is one way of describing it, but um, pushing wasn't something that um, one one didn't set out to push. You see, watching the athletes as a group, they're training as a group, they're working in small boats, and when they're working in small boats as a group, they can see the progress they're making because they're making it against each other, they're helping each other. But what I can see is how much effort they put in and know that they can always put them, there's always more that you can find. You can always find that extra whisker. So the way you push is by you set the program and then you watch them do it. And if they do it comfortably, then you can increase the program. And so you <laughs> increase, increase, increase. And that's how the program is put together. And they gain confidence from doing that because they see how much more they can do when they think they've reached their point. And when I went to Canada in the first place in, 19, in 1990, I went to different clubs and made presentations. And I, when, when I went to Toronto, I was accused of being irresponsible because my program was harder than they'd been doing before. It turns out that when they were in Seoul, only one boat made the final and it came last. And the cause was placed on overtraining. Everyone thought, coaches said, we overtrained. And what better excuse can you have than we tried too hard? And so it was a, an acceptable excuse for them. So if I come along and say, well, you know, we do a lot more than this, then it raises heckles and so I was not very popular to begin with and that filtered across the whole of Canada it filled into schools into boys teachers coaches were afraid to push their boys too hard because of overtraining and that was the result of why they were not performing as well so 
we start up start off a program and gradually step up and increase the program and increase the program until they find that athletes find yes they can do more they can do a lot more so it's not pushing because when you say coach is pushing you you're talking about somebody with a megaphone and shouting bowl harder drive harder push harder that isn't a way that you get the best out of an athlete. You do it by the subtle approach, by gradually tweaking the program. And I, I get, yeah, I, I guess you are right. And what I wanted to mean that by pushing is how did you keep strong on keep in a softly way, keep doing and putting the dose of work that you believe on was the right one when you had, um, uh, pushback from some athletes that they wanted to tell you that they were overtraining or that it wasn't working for them or they tried to find excuses like how where you know that that was a little my question i think you you did have a big belief of no this is what it needs to be done and and i understand that now they're pushing some of them are pushing back because they're uncomfortable or it's not working for them but I need to keep going with the training. Uh, this is the right training, and I'm convinced that's the right thing to do. Yeah, right. You see, um, to be the best in the world, you have to train hard. You have to train as hard, or if not harder, than the per the people that you've got to beat. Otherwise, you you're not doing the best for yourself. And the program is designed to to stretch you, your limitations. It doesn't set out the heavy program. Look, we've got to meet this program, guys. It pushes boundaries. It sets a program you can complete comfortably. You can meet this program, and then it's gradually increased, little bit, little by little, piece by piece. So it's not saying you've got to work harder, guys. You've got to push harder. Uh, an, an example is when I arrived in... Uh, 2000, um, after a couple of months, every, every week we would hold a meeting. I would hold a meeting of all the athletes. Uh, I don't believe in standing in the boathouse and giving them lectures and talking to them before we go on the water. It's just a waste of time. So what we would do is if once a week, and I did this with every team I coached, but every week we'd have a meeting. And what that meeting did is explain the program, why we do it, and the benefits we get from it and it was open to any athlete to then question the program saying i don't agree with that and we would discuss it and if the whole group then then i would change the program but never once ever in my 70 years did i ever have to do that because once they understood and once it was explained to them then that's what they tried to do now one particular meeting I'd only just, I'd been in Canada six weeks. One guy at the back of the room put his hand up and he had the pop meter in his hand. And he said, Mike, what should I do with this? Sorry, Mike, can you just, I didn't quite hear that. Maybe you could move the, the microphone a little closer to you. He, he put, what did he do with his hand? He said, what did he pull up? It was, it was Joe Stankovicius. And he sat in the room and he, he lifted his arm and he was and dangling from his hand was a pulse meter on a strap. Pulse meter, sorry. Okay, a heart rate, heart rate strap. A pulse meter. Okay. And he said, what should I do with this mic? I said, well, you should wear it, Joe. He said, but you're not interested in pulse rates. 
I said, of course I'm interested in pulse rate. Your pulse rate will tell you how hard you're working and how quickly you recover and how well you're developing in the program. He said, no, you don't. We don't train to pulse rates. I might as well throw it away. You see, I then realized that they'd been training with pulse rates. Now, with a pulse rate, what happens is you adjust your training according to your pulse. But it had mm. the effect. The effect of it has a ceiling on performance. It, it doesn't get, you don't push boundaries because you're always training within a range. And I had that experience. I'd been through the whole process, FISA announced for taught pulse rates, British rowing taught pulse rates. And I refused to be, be drawn into down that road. And so with Joe, I said, look, the program, oh, we, oh, I know. He said, okay, Mike, so you just want us to keep working and working until we're dead. I said, <laughs> okay. I, 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 I wasn't there for that meeting, but I think it was repeated a few times during our time. So, Carry on. I said, no, Joe, that's not what I want. I'm here to show you what other people do that can help you that that will win medals for them. And it's your choice. If you I choose, if you choose not to do it, then I understand it's a tough call, you know, but the people that beat you will will do it. And then Joe then followed the program and all he needed to do was assurance. All he needed to do was the confidence. And Joe then worked so hard. He trained so hard. And mm -hmm. he's not a big guy. He was not a big guy. But he was certainly the main, one of the main drivers of that eight that won the world championship six months mm -hmm. ago. And so these athletes get something off their chest. And if it's explained to them what we do and why we do it, then they get confidence. And if they don't have confidence then it's better they'd withdraw. And athletes were given the choice. If you, you, you don't have to do the program, if you don't want to do it, but you, you know, but you can't just step in and out of a program. You have to either do it or not do it. Well, Carlos, where do you, <laughs> I, this is fantastic, Mike, in terms of clarity, in, in terms of vulnerability, um, I, I, I'm just sitting there. Unfortunately, Carlos and I are not in the same room. We can't see each other's body language here, but I can assure you as we kind of near that third 500, the, the midpoint of this, this race today, I think we've gotten into the energy we wanted to get into. And, and Carlos, where does this take us now as we continue this journey with this, you know, amazing project on Elf Lake, but and I still want to know, I'm sure you do, Carlos, Mike, how is this affecting you? I mean, when you're sitting there and you're having to put this conviction and this belief forward day after day for, as you just politely said, 70 years, do you, did you get tired? Were there, were there moments where you ever went back and, and questioned, was it worth it? Do you know, Barney, never once have I thought that. Wow. Never once did I think, is it worth it? Um, there were times when it was frustrating, but it didn't change my my love for what I do. There were times when people told lies about you or stab you in the bank. You would do somebody a favor and they would turn around and kick you. And that happened several times. And, and it, it never stopped me from, from loving the sport. 
because there were some wonderful people I met in the sport and they made up for it tenfold. Did, um, did uh, Mike, uh, looking back um, at many years of coaching, and I bet, I, I'm sure your coaching changed or, you know, as you got old, as you grew older and you grew uh, more savvy and uh, learned more about yourself and about how to manage the team and, and how to expect, um, you know, if, if, if now looking back, um, if you had to do it again, you know, it would be, you will do it differently or you think you made some, um, you know, some mistakes or you, you, something that will call to you, say, you know, if I had to go to 2000 back, uh, I, you know, I will change a little the training program or I'll interact differently with the rowers or, you know, how you see it back now, um, or you will do the same thing. I mean, in a nutshell, then I would do the same thing. Of course, I make mistakes. and if, But, you know, we learn from mistakes. And if you don't make mistakes, then you don't really learn as much. And, yes, there are things I wish I had done, I had not done or wish I had done better. But generally, 90%, 99%, I was very happy with what I did and the way I did things. It didn't suit everybody. Um, allowing everyone to join in a program was had a huge impact on the success that came out of the program, but it had its downside too, in that everyone then expected to win a gold medal and everyone expected me to select them. And of course, there's only one seat in a single or there's only eight seats in an eight. And so a lot of people were unhappy and didn't like it and didn't like me and didn't and said so in, and other people believed them. And, they're the unpleasant sides, but the people that I did meet, the people that were successful, were special people to me. Well, Mike, let, let me let me Mike tell Ferguson. you that. Um, yeah, go ahead, Carlos. You know, um, you know, many many rowers that uh, were exposed to you, and I, you know, I was once a rower, and I never got exposed to you or a coach like you. I will, I will think that. Um, you know, if they look back and, um, you know, realizing that they were exposed to an expert of the sport because you were a student of the sport and you knew everything you could, you know, like you, you, you learn everything you thought could help you. You devoted all the time you had on the day to help them to achieve their dream. And at the end of the day, you know, they just had one chance, correct? Because they, they cannot go back on time. So, you know, the time is clicking and they need to go on with their lives. So if they didn't have a, a person who could leave them to that result or to be the best they could be, then, you know, uh, they'll have not chance the chance. Like many people who want to win the Olympics and it happens that they don't have the right environment of, of the right coach. And, you know, you, you know, created those medals and, it wasn't, you know, looking back, I bet a lot of those rowers are feeling like that, uh, you know, they don't like this or the other. But at the end of the day, the goal was performance and you produce performance. So my question to that will be, um, you know, you, you know, you do you have interactions to, to those rowers that you change their life? Because not I don't think you change the life of those rowers because they won the Olympics or they perform. I think you change the life of those rowers because you show them what is possible to do when you work hard and you commit to something with expertise. Do do you do, did they come back to you or they 
Uh, and not that you expect them to come back to you, but do they they have that that um, that memory, or they just see it as a as a path to just win a gold medal? Well, I get, I get, I've had many thank you letters, and people have written to me, even like two or three or four or five years after after they've been with me. I still get letters. I still get calls now. Athletes still communicate with me from different parts of the world. And that's very special to me, yes. I feel that when they've moved into life, into they've realized the the, the value of have, having a, an organized, a disciplined regime, mm. that it's helped them in that life. When I first got the letters, I thought, oh, yeah, 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 you're just being nice to me. You're just uh, saying you know, saying nice things to me, which is pleasant anyway. But as I got older in life, I realized that there was more to it than that. It wasn't that they were being nice to me. They really knew what the, the benefits that they'd had from being in a, a discipline that um, that helped them to get the best out of themselves and become very successful in life, in, in their business life. And a lot of the athletes that I've coached have been very successful businessmen. Mike, I, I think Carlos teased out where I was going, which is this idea that we've talked about the revolution and why use the word revolution when we're talking about sport is a way of thinking differently. And the belief that the value of rowing is this idea of acquiring life skills and building and forging lifelong friendships and relationships. And I'm curious for you now, as you look back, is there that clarity that that was underneath the surface? I mean, were these life skills that you were instilling and therefore the conflict and the friction and the tension was present in the environment at all times because that's what happens when you push hard people's emotions run high and i can certainly speak to my experiences in that on both sides positive and negative but is there that deep down relationship with the sport as a vocate as a way to express oneself as a human versus just this identity as an athlete as an olympic champion does that ring true for you as you look back at the hundreds of people that you've interacted with, some with a gold medal around their necks and others with a few months of training and some really raw hamburger hands that they couldn't handle the training. Um, difficult question to answer that, Barney. Which part of the question do you want me to answer? Is it, is it about then the growth? of the human being more than just the results that you were really interested in. And I'm not putting words in your mouth. That's your choice to answer that. But clearly this is about more than just winning and losing races. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's about your day-to-day -day life. It's the journey it was far more, far more enjoyable and, and beneficial than the, than the end product, Barney. And it's meeting different people and seeing them progress and seeing them, and get a little faster on the water and seeing them row a little better and seeing them pleased with themselves, seeing them pleased with the progress they've made and treating them like friends and not as a 
a taskmaster or a boss that's standing over them with a whip, but somebody who's friend. And a coach has to be a friend. You have to be friendly. You have to like the people you're coaching, and they have to like you. And you then work together and produce something. Of course, there are times when, like your brother, you're sometimes you have a fight with your brother. So, sure, that happens. But on the whole, you stay as a family, as a friends. And that's a very important part of the whole process. You know, the gold medal certainly lasts for, for a long time, but it's what makes that gold medal that is the biggest prize. As a parent, as a parent, I'm curious, and I know that we're, we're touching on a very sensitive subject, Mike, and I, I'm very, very sorry for obviously your, your loss. Um, and I, and I don't know how to frame this other than to say, as a parent, is it the same? Was it the same thing for you in terms of wanting and, and trying to create that relationship with your children the same way for growth and, and for, for progress? Cause I know Carlos and I both now fathers, um, Carlos with a three and a five-year-old Tav and Kyla and Tate a little bit older in, in my context, but how does that translate into the role of a father? How, how do you kind of, you know, remember that or, or see that uh, in, in terms of your experience? Well, you see, my, my two sons, obviously, I wanted them to row and it wasn't hard work to get them to row. They wanted to row. They wanted to do it. And I told them as boys that I would help them and not necessarily push, but steer them in the right direction until they reached the age of 18 and then they were free to do what they wanted to do and I would just leave them alone. And they, But they wanted to do it. I didn't have to push them. They both wanted to do it. See, the blessing was, that, an indirect blessing that is, that we were all amateurs in those days. I wasn't a professional until I went to Canada. So I did all my time. I had a job. Everyone had jobs. The, the, uh, the team had jobs. You you rode early morning, six o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock in the evening. You didn't row during the day. And so it gave me um, a family life, if you like, because I've, I'm with my family and I'm helping them. They're on the water. And Annie was always very supportive and she followed along with, and we worked it out. You know, I spent a lot of time with the kids. I spent a lot of time with them rowing on the water, teaching them mm. to row. And so it was it was different. Of course, when you become a professional, as I did when I was in Canada, I'm now paid. And the athletes in Canada, to be part of me, for me to coach them, they had to be with me, didn't they? they had to be in the that meant they were traveling away from their homes across country, sometimes five, five hours flying time away. And it, so it became, the environment became different. So you're now working in a, a full-time situation. So I'm on the water from 7.30 in the morning until 4.30 night. All that time is spent with my new family, my athletes, the people that are rowing with me. And it was completely different from my own family because they they had their schools. And when I went to Canada in 90, by, by this time my kids were past 18 and had left home. Mm. Um, Adrian went to USA to college school and Chris went north to um, with his 
wife is late with his family. And so Annie and I were on her own. So it was very easy for us. We weren't breaking up a family by moving to Canada in 90. Mm. And we've had, we've had that flexibility, that freedom, which was fortunate. Um, Mike, um, when you were deep in um, training a team and, um, you know, a lot of the time I led Lake and uh, it was day after day and they were months before, you know, the world championships or, you know, it was year after year after you had the Olympics, which was the ultimate goal. Um, what was your life outside of coaching, which you didn't have, I bet you didn't have much energy because you spent so many hours coaching and, you know, it was, it, it, did you have any hobbies or it, your hobby was just rowing and when you weren't at the lake, you were just thinking of how to make them faster or you had a way to get your brain out or, you know, how was your life outside of, of when the athletes saw you? Well, when I became, um, when I was paid, when, I be, when it became my job in Canada, then um, Andy came with me to Canada and she had to make new friends and she had to be involved in different things, which she did involve herself. And I tended to support her activities. She started playing golf. And so I, I would play golf with her. <laughs> and so on Sunday, we'd have Sunday off. The program was arranged around the development of the athletes. And they're now training full time. And so we would have Sunday, all day Sunday off, and we'd have Saturday afternoon off and Wednesday afternoon. They'd work for two and a half days and have a break, another two and a half, three, three and a half days, about 30, another two and a half days, and then have a big break. And in those breaks, I was able to involve with other things. And I would support Annie. Annie liked acting on the stage, and so I would go and watch her. So I had other interests, um, but they were part-time interests and not a, a deeply involved interest like I was rowing. And so all my time was spent thinking about the rowing and thinking about how to make it better. Mike, when you describe it for us in terms of 70 years, it takes on quite a powerful message of, of dedication and, and a life's work. Um, do you reflect now? Uh, Carlos is so great in terms of his imagery around our responsibility uh, as humans to take advantage of our inheritance. I guess if I understand that, that would be your life. Your, your, your inheritance is your life and to, to use it fully and make the most of it. What what do you look back at now and, and, and sort of describe as, as your, you know, life's work? Is it, is it, is it, I mean, how would you, how would you describe that to someone when they say, how do you summarize those 70 years? What, 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 what would be the words you would use to describe or summarize those 70 years in the sport? Um, well, to off the cuff would be not easy to have one one description. Um, when when you're coaching, when you, when you're teaching, which coaches teaching, when you're passing on information, you like to see the product get better. And if it's not getting better from your teaching, then you 
try an alternative route and it's and you keep trying different things until you get what you want for the, for that person and in that process of course you learn a lot about the sport going off subject a bit here i know but, but nevertheless you like to feel feel that not only does the athlete progress, but when you move on, when you leave, that progresses as well. You like to feel you've left something behind, not not just a name, but that the, the work you've done is making progress. If you go away and see it collapse, then that's not very pleasant either. Like uh, I was asked not to continue in Canada, as you know, in into twelve, and to see the team collapse, you could say, well, you know, you should be happy because it's proving that you've helped them, and now they've got rid of you. They're failing, and yes, there's an element of that, but there's a, but the bigger element is that all of the ideas has not had any effect at all. In that the team is now struggling and doing badly, and and that that isn't really what. Is nice. That isn't the thing that I like very much. I would like to feel that I left Canada and and left a strong system whereby athletes continue to progress and do well. And that fortunately hasn't unfortunately hasn't happened. Well, before we dive into that a little bit further, because I think you have opened up a conversation that I know that several members of our community would really like to explore further. And, and we'd reached out to several members uh, of the community in terms of this opportunity to speak with you. And that was a question they were adamant that we speak to you about is what would you do now? How would you help kind of reinvigorate and, and reignite uh, the fire of Canadian heavyweight men's rowing? But I don't want to leave you on that question of 70 years with that underpinning energy because i think it's not fair go maybe deeper than that mike you've had time in the united states you've had time um obviously in marlow working with stephen redgrave as a young 18 19 year old and then working with the women and taking them to their first medal at the olympic games in, in 2000 in sydney australia um bigger bigger than that then if we step away from the the rowing side just yeah how do you look back and, and and frame this in terms of your life's work um you know it's 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 powerful to listen to your words as you can hear carlos and i don't need to interject very often it's just the weight of your words i never asked a woman her age but i think i'm allowed to confirm you're 85 and this is a powerful moment to look back so beyond the rowing what what is, what stands out of you what's as Carlos would want to say, what's on your iPad flashing before your eyes of these, of these life life experiences? Well, what's on my mind? My mind, I must say that I do think a lot about Canada and how Canada are not doing very well. I mean, the girls are doing well, which is great, um, but the boys aren't doing very well, and. I find that a little depressing. And of course, I dream about going back on what I would do to revive and get it back again. And I don't see things being any different from when I returned in 1990. Um, as regards the whole, my whole cycle about what I feel, I, I feel very comfortable with what I did and wherever I went. And I judge that by the, the number of people that 
still communicate with me and this and enthusiasm they still show for me from America, from Canada, from Russia and you know, and other places. Mm. That is where I get my content. Well, Mike, if I had to ask you, and maybe that will be a, a question to ask to former athletes that you coach, but you know, when when um, when you get interaction of these drawers, um, wh what are the things that you think they appreciate the more on you, or I think that you gave them direction, or you helped them to win, or you show you were able to lead them to get better, or um, you you set up an environment that they they feel like it was it was unique i mean again you know and i'm asking this question and and i want to reiterate because i was once talking to to a friend of mine that is in business and um and we were talking about uh ceos of big companies and and how much money they make you know they he was telling me look at you know like this company is paying their ceo you know, I don't know, one, two million dollars a year is a big company. And um, and they are um, and and when this CEO comes back, uh, you know, they are going to pay. You know, they are trying to go after this CEO, pay him that because he's going to transform the company. And you, you think that somebody can get paid two million dollars is ridiculous, but he can produce millions of dollars because of his leadership and actually is. Is, is the bargain to pay him that money, which is ridiculous for how much money he can produce because of his leadership and his vision. And I think that people sometimes forget about that and forget about how much a, a human being prepared and with the right skills can produce transformation or can produce leadership. And a lot of the things you can learn, but others comes with the person. And I think in a way, um, when you were leading those teams in Canada, people, uh, you former athletes and, and many people who were part of your system forget that um, you you did set up an environment that other people cannot create and it's not mm -hmm. just a, a pirate mm -hmm. or something. Hello? No, no, that's it, Carlos. That's it. it. It was a unique environment. It was a unique environment. There's no question about it. And... And it, it is like a CEO that, as you said, is is transformative, you know, like a, like we hear about Steve Jobs and, and his impact at Apple and only he could do it. Um, I, I don't know if, Mike, that's kind of forming a question for you in terms of just, you know, your awareness of that. Did you did you realize how unique the environment you're creating was? Well, you, you don't realize it while you're doing it, but. It's afterwards that you do realize it, yes. You see, when when you when you go in, as I said earlier, when you go into when I go into a new country because they've not done very well, and athletes have struggled and been depressed and dis disappointed, and they have low opinions of themselves, they have low opinions of what they can do, and certainly when an athlete wins a gold medal, they it has a big impact on their life, but then not as much though as knowing that they've gone from being the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. They're, I'm not a waster after all. I'm not useless after all. I am a good athlete. I am good. And you're going from being having a, a bad opinion of yourself to now knowing that you are capable. And that's what they're grateful for. And that's what I love to see. And the athletes are 
I feel that's what they value most. Very, very well said. I, I think then, uh, as we get into the last 500, Mike, and, and those red buoys are coming, and, and we will panic, as you tell us to, uh, in a good way, so that we can summon up that energy. For anyone that hasn't had that speech from you, I uh, wish that I could get you to deliver it, but I don't know if the context is quite there. Um, the spirit, though, being is you've got to summon up that superhuman strength, right? You've got to find that energy in the, in the, in the moment where you don't think you have anything more and, and lift that car off the baby or run up that tree and get away from the tiger. Um, sorry, I went on a little tangent there, but very, very special to have these moments with you. And Carlos, Jake Wetzel, you know, someone that doesn't really seem to worry too much about how other people um, interpret his words. Um, I, I, I'm going to just take his words and read them to you. And I guess I'm going to give you the chance to, to jump in on a very challenging topic. But um, Jake said, I'm most curious about his thoughts about where Canadian rowing is at and what we can do to turn it around. Our legacies are tarnished by it not continuing and it bothers me. Mm. When did he say that? Yesterday. Yeah. Well, he's right, isn't he? I, it's, I, do, I understand where he's coming from. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I don't know. Is it, have times changed so much, Mike, that, that there isn't the opportunity to, to create an environment that had these features... And, and, and again, Carlos has pulled some of them out, right? The, the singularity of focus, the attention to detail, the competitiveness, the inclusiveness in terms of an open environment where people were brought uh, to the lake with the chance to realize their potential. Is that no longer dual, viable? Of course. Of course it's viable. Of course it could be done again. You know, in all my rowing, in all of my rowing life, what I learned in those first few days apply very much as they do today, or they did up until this time I stopped coaching. Uh, the same basics have not changed. Of course, things have got better, things have added to, things that we've gone down, certain things are better, materials are better, the, the way that we record all of our training and that. But in the end, it's how hard you push the boat down. It's, it's, how, hard, it's how hard, how much effort you put into what you're doing. It's not the machines, it's not the pulse meters, the the range from the speed, boat speed and all this business. That isn't what does it for you. It's it's what you put into it yourself. And that hasn't changed. And it's not going to change, is it? The machines aren't going to help you. They give you information. And the amount of help you get from them is small, but it's it's what you've got in your heart, isn't it? In your mind, it's your ambition your determination how much you put in that's what counts most and that's not going to, to change yeah i i i think you know you're going back to you know these these fundamentals and these basics and these beliefs that you have that are i think are the first step to success and i think maybe um, it's hard to find coaches that are so knowledgeable or they are so confident or they are so um, experienced 
uh, to lead today. I don't know. I mean, I guess you, you know, it's hard to get to put somebody in your in your in your feet after so many years of coaching and having seen so much. So, um, you know, it, it, you see it easy, but um, I guess it's not easy to do. Well, I mean, that's an, uh, that's another view of view altogether. In that, when when I started in my, in my early days, there were there was none of these um, things that you had to do. Um, okay, it was, it was an amateur sport. We did it in our own time. The coaches would come down to the club once once a week or twice a week, and some clubs or many clubs didn't have a coach. It was they were just passed on from one member to another. And you learned from your own studies, your own work, the own time you spent, as I did. And then it got to the stage whereby everyone's professional, everyone or the, at the top level, people are training full-time and the coaches are training full-time. And to be a coach, you have to go and have an education. You have to have a degree or whatever. And uh, if you don't have that degree, the chances of getting a joke is pretty small. But it's not what makes the coach. It's not the paper. It's not the paperwork. It's not what you learn in books and on the shelves. It's what you acquire yourself. And that, that certainly is going going out of the sport. It's changing the sport. I mean, for an example, I didn't go to university to get a degree or to be a coach or train as a coach. I didn't go go on a coach education. And yet I go into a country and I'm going into a country where there are highly qualified people, people teaching, lecturing, biomechanics or what have you at university, but not producing winning crews. So it isn't that that makes the athlete, is it? It's, it's, it's uh, what you create yourself. It's how you develop yourself is what makes the coach. It's... Um, it's spending time doing it and, and facing the problems and sorting the problems. And is it, Mike, is it safe to say that you felt you had a decent understanding of what other countries were doing? And the simple principle was we must do as much or more than them if we expect to compete with them. And I don't want to simplify it to that degree necessarily but i hear in you a really basic premise that things haven't changed and there's no shortcuts i mean it just am i, am I being too simplistic in in terms of your mindset well i didn't follow what other coaches were doing carl um, adam in ratterberg had an influence which was brought to us by Bob Janicek, who was a coach in Czechoslovakia. He came to England and he brought with him Bob Janicek's principles. But where my principles come from is when I'm in my sculling boat and I was out sculling, where I gained most speed was when I was alongside another boat. When mm. I, I, I was in my single and I would get alongside a four or an eight and try and stay with them and that's where I gained most and when I started, first started coaching I was coach I was designated coach for the lightweights because nobody else wanted to do it lightweight rowing in, in Great Britain wasn't recognised as a as, it was a non-use sport it was a down market sport so when we had to produce a crew I was the only one 
was interested and so I was given the jobs as a lightweight but we had no funding nothing we had no equipment or anything I'm in charge of the lightweights and so what I did is got everyone to join together in single sculling boat and I would scull with them I hadn't got a coaching launch and I would scull alongside them and to see the progress they made with me and alongside each other was huge and so a lot of my coaching came from those days when I learned how to get the best out of myself and other people by doing it with them. And so for the whole winter, we used to skull, I used to skull in a group on the Tideway in London, in Putney to Mortlake. We would all get in a group and off we'd go. And at that time, I was faster than they were. And so it gave me an upper hand because they then had to do what I said because I could beat them. Right. <laughs> Yes, it, it was, so that, that is where a lot of my things came from, having done it myself. And, right. And that's where training as a group came from. It didn't, from having to do it, I had no choice. But I was, a, I, I was the fastest scholar, and so I was way faster than they were at that time. And so it, it was a good way, to, it, was, it got a good message, of course. No one would argue with me. They didn't agree with it, maybe not, but then it was quite successful. And from there, I developed it into into my coaching. It, um, it makes um, it makes perfect sense, and I think um, maybe that's what brought you to have those big convictions because it worked for you, and you believe so much on it because you experienced it yourself, and it wasn't somebody telling you. Or somebody explaining you their story it was your first-hand experience, and you said, "Well, if I if it works for me, it can work for others." So let, let me. Uh, I have a finishing question. If 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 I will say that the, the boat you you took the more joy coaching uh, was the men's aid because it's the fastest one and the one with the more power, that will be fair to say it, it was a special boat to coach. You really uh, got attracted more with that event than other events. Uh, my my love, when I first started rowing, uh, we rowed in an, a novice fall and we would row three times a week and it wasn't enough for me. So I wanted to do more. I loved the sport. And so I started sculling. We had a club clinker with and I'd go out there on the other days that the fall wasn't rowing. They'd go out in club. And sculling became a huge attraction and for me it was doing it well doing it with skill doing it with grace and flow i'd seen an old boy sculling at the club and it was beautiful to watch him skull compared with everybody else and i wanted to skull like it so i spent hours sculling trying to to practice his like skill and got him to teach me and show me what he did so I did learn a lot from that old boy. But sculling was my first love, and I really wanted to be successful sculling. So I started a sculling group in Great Britain, blah, blah, blah. When it comes to coaching, the, the role is to win a medal. And so I would look for a boat that could win that medal. If we had two top sculls, two top rowers that were better than everybody else, we'd go for a pair or four or an eight. When I went to Canada in, when I went in 2000, for example, we hadn't got any stars. There was nobody that was going to win in a pair. 
And so what we what I had to do was to develop something for the future, bring in as many people as we could so that in the future might be we have a good pair. And that's how the eight came together. And also I have learned skills. I knew from tricks how to get the best out of an eight. And so I felt I was giving them an advantage, coaching them in an eight. And But, it, but principally it brought on more people, more people into the into top the into the national team the more people you have in the national team the the more chances you've got you've got of winning haven't you and that's how the eight was was formed and if we hadn't gotten an eight then we'd have to go for a four as we did on other years one year we hadn't gotten eight so we wrote a four we won a bronze medal in the four in one year and then a pair we had to make do with a pair with with um, um, Kevin Light and Malcolm Howard. And the following year, we we weren't going to have any successes in small boats, and so we went back to the eight again. So, yes, I love coaching the eight. It's the fastest boat, it's the heavyweight, and if you win the, if you win the eight, then I, you're world champions, you're the best country, if your country wins an eight. And I like that, of course, but that wasn't the reason. It was the icing on the cake it wasn't the cake the cake was in creating 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 as many people as we can get into that team yeah that answer your question <laughs> yeah yeah no for sure mike and and you know as we know there is so much ground to cover i i really am going to of course give you the last word here to confirm that we have covered meaningful ground um but there's a temptation i have and a, and a hope that i have that maybe there's another conversation to follow from this that goes into maybe other chapters other features but the undercurrent of, again of these conversations and the integrity of them is rooted in this idea of raw honest vulnerable dialogue around a sport that is serving as a vehicle for young people to express themselves and ultimately for the community to grow and to learn. And, and I hear in you a real confidence and a real certainty that that is the legacy, is, is that there was growth achieved. And I'll never forget a great message you provided in one of those weekly meetings, which was that you needed to know that every single person was there for the same reason, and that was to win. But the challenge was that there's only so many seats. And so would people feel a sense of pride being part of a program that won, even if they weren't in the boat? And that was a powerful message, this idea of being part of something bigger than yourself. And as you can tell, we've done our research here. We've reached out to the community. We have so many great people, Mike, that are thinking um, – again, frequently of the impact you had and some that are still struggling with that and being very vulnerable about the fact that it was tough. It was brutal. It was awful in the sense of not realizing a dream and having a dream almost feel like it was in maybe in their mind crushed. Mm -hmm. So Rob Gibson, I know that name will bring a smile to your face in terms of one of the true warriors in, in that environment and and someone that interestingly has 
quite an interesting statement, um, like Jake did. And, and he's been quite vulnerable in saying that he feels a little bit responsible because he stayed on after and was hoping to carry on the legacy. But anyways, I'll give Rob the stage just to ask you this question. He says, could you ask Mike if he has anything to say to former athletes who are disgruntled by his program selection, by their experience. And just, I love Rob for that because it's an honest question of, you know, would that be something um, that, that you would entertain? And what would you say to those people that, that say that they had a, a, a bad experience in spite of the fact that the team won? I, I, well, I, I think I understand the question. Um, I think then the, the question is, what have I got to say to people who weren't selected? And what do they feel about the team that won without them in it? Of, of course, you, you create a, a, a bond with an athlete. If, if, if you're working together on the same project with the same goals then it's natural that you become friendly with an athlete you become they become part of you you become part of each other and, and when the athlete fails then you fa you feel that you failed as well true there's only one place for like 10 people all time and only one person can fill that place but nevertheless it it's unpleasant when people that you've tried to help and you've become attract, become attached to fail. But it's inevitable, and, and unfortunately, it's part of the sport that you have to live with. And yes, there are times when I have felt very sad about people not making a boat. But I know I have no choice. And I console myself by saying that it, that it, the goal is to get the people that can win still have that chance to win. And it's better that they go down the road of not putting in somebody who would take away that chance than just put them in for the wrong reasons. And yeah. that, that lends itself to the idea that it's not fair. Hmm. Right? It's, it's, it's not equitable. And this is what I think the undercurrent of the conversation that maybe Carlos and I and you can revisit at some point, because as I said, we are at the finish line here today, is just that spirit of creating an environment where people are willing to take risks, where they're actually willing to face the fear of failure head on and still keep going. Mm -hmm. And I just appreciate from the bottom of my heart, Mike, the time that you've taken the energy that you've brought to this conversation. Um, I don't know where Carlos will feel we've gotten to, but I am certain that he will hold our, our, our conversation accountable to our Bible, which is raw, vulnerable, honest conversations. Um, Carlos, where, where have we gotten to? Well, I, I think we, we asked many questions to you, Mike, and, um, and you know every answer, every single answer was you know was thoughtful and and you couldn't prepare for you you know it really shows it really shows you know the meaning behind this of 
you know, why why you did that? Why you you been 70 years coaching and what was the real um motivation behind it? Oh, what did you enjoy about it? And and also and I think that comes all to the last question of of Barney, you know, when he says, Okay, what you will say to the people that have a bitter street experience or they were cut or they don't have the gold medal. And he's like, you know, I mean, within my whole journey, you know, they were moments where I had to make hard decisions, but I was so convinced that they were the right ones to achieve the goal that we all decided it will be that they were, you know, I had to, to take them. And I think that's again, you know, this conviction and this understanding of the process and this clear, um, clear, path toward toward the goal that everybody commits you know and i think and that's leadership and i think that's leadership and preparation so uh, i think that um maybe all these people that have a bittersweet experience they need to revisit and they maybe also need to look at themselves and understand maybe it's a selfish feel because they are looking just at the outcome for them and not the outcome of the group, which is what they committed to, to just that the group would succeed and not themselves. And that's hard to do. Yes. I, I understand what you're saying, Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I, I, I don't have any um, way of confirming this, but I feel like we've challenged you today and I can assure you that that is a return uh, present for all the challenges that you provided all of us. And I want to finish with a very, very powerful uh, statement that I heard from a co-coach of yours, a, a colleague of yours, I guess we would say in the international ranks, uh, Mike Tady. Mike. And we were talking and Mike Tady described the experience as a coach of sending your crew to the start line during this era that we've spoken to today, 2000, 2001 to 2012. And he said that seeing the Canadian flag on the start list, seeing that Canadian flag in his crew's heats created a sense of certainty that they were in for the toughest race of the regatta. That every single time a Canadian crew went to the start line, he had a clarity and a certainty that they were going to bring a battle tested and a battle readiness to his crew that was going to stretch them. And I think that's the ultimate compliment. I think that's the ultimate compliment to the environment, to the culture. And the fact that you let us go deep today and explore all sides of the experience is a really, really powerful demonstration, I think, of your core belief that it is about human experience. And I really hope that this conversation has cemented that for you and confirmed that that era and that chapter on Elk Lake is something very special and has truly impacted the community and the lives of many in an incredible way. And, um, I'll leave you just to confirm that this uh, is not me putting words in your mouth. And, and how did this conversation feel for you today, Mike? Okay. Barney, okay. it was um, a long conversation. Um, I would like to have 
worded it differently some of what I answered but hopefully it's some help to you well you know when you've not been involved in it for well it's eight nine ten years now you um, a lot of the you know, a lot of detail gets missed but I hope there's enough there for you to <laughs> I think there's plenty Carlos final words yeah I mean it's just you know, um, thank you, Mike, for giving us the chance to explore and to revisit uh, some of the unique, um, you know, exp you know, like wisdom that you have through all these years of coaching. And it was a, it was just a treat for me to be able to speak with you today. Um, thank you, Carlos. It's nice of you to say that. Mike, we got a little music that'll take us out, and it's um, rooted in that premise of. You, you know, talking about a revolution, Tracy Chapman, and the premise here is that you've put an energy out there for our listeners that I think is going to be a call to action in their personal or professional lives. And just thank you very much on behalf of our community for taking the time and we look forward to catching up very, very soon. Thank you, Bonnie. Okay. Well,